Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 198. What did you think watching the uh, insurrection? It was a profound lack of shock. It's almost a sad, like, um, it's finally happening. about the woman who died today after being shot in those protests in Capitol Hill. Uh, correspondent Jeff Paul has the latest on that part of the story for us tonight. Good evening, Jeff. Yeah, good evening, Shannon. The investigation into the shooting is still in its early stages, but here's what we know so far. The family of the woman killed has confirmed her identity as Ashley Babbitt of San Diego. She was reportedly a 14-year veteran with the Air Force. We also know just the day before the shooting, she sent out this tweet in response to another, quote, Nothing will stop us. They can try and try and try, but the storm is here and it is descending upon D.C. in less than 24 hours, dark to light. The shooting happened after 3 p.m. today inside the Capitol as pro-Trump supporters stormed the building. There is video that appears to show the incident where it shows a crowd of people inside the Capitol yelling. There's seemingly some confusion and chaos, and then you hear a shot fired off. Come on! 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 Come on!
My name is Gordon Pennycook. I am an assistant professor of behavioral science at the University of Virginia. I studied uh, human thought, you know, reasoning and uh, decision-making and how that relates to people's beliefs uh, and some, some kind of like behaviors. And, um, and I am now kind of focused a lot on political beliefs, misinformation, uh, things of that nature. Yeah, right now, Penny Cook is studying misinformation more than anything else. More specifically, he's studying how brains deal with misinformation, how they sort out what is and is not factually true within the media, within the marketplace of ideas, within the information ecosystem from news sources, both mainstream to social. So I knew I wanted to talk to him as soon as I saw these incredible statistics following the insurrection. After the riots, still, right now, more than half of people who identify as Republicans in the United States still believe there's a conspiracy afoot, way more than half. In recent polls by Vox and Data for Progress, they found that 72% of Republicans still believe the election was stolen. They say that it is still quite clear to them that this was all a fraud. Millions of people, 72% of Republicans, are conspiracy theorists now. They believe the media is lying. State and federal governments are lying. The courts are lying. The military is lying. There's a massive cover-up. And all of these institutions and experts are part of some sort of grand conspiracy. 72% of Republicans. And among independents, it's 42%. And above all that, 65% of Republicans now say they no longer trust the election process itself. And that's compared to only 12% of Democrats who say the same. So I wanted to talk to Gordon about this for two reasons. One, he's been studying the impact of misinformation, the spread of these false beliefs and others since 2016. And his research has uncovered something that is fundamental to all of this that was really surprising to me. It shouldn't have been, but it really was. More on that in a second. Because the other reason I wanted to talk to Penny Cook is that he and his colleague, David G. Rand at MIT, were studying this specific conspiratorial belief as the insurrection happened. They had just published a paper titled Examining False Beliefs About Voter Fraud in the Wake of the 2020 Presidential Election. That was the title of it. And it came out just a few days before the rioters stormed the Capitol. And that's why you heard him earlier say he felt a profound lack of shock when he saw the news and why he said to himself, it's finally happening. Here's Penny Cook talking about why he and Rand decided to study the spread of false beliefs about voter fraud after the courts had rejected the false claims of the Trump administration and Biden was declared the winner. So for that one, um, what really actually happened was, uh, I couldn't sleep, um, <laughs> you know, for, in the interim when, with the like days long election that happened. And so like many people I was, uh, and so what happens when I do that is like, I, I was thinking about it anyway, so I figured I should, and I was just kind of really fascinated given how, um, insane the claims were about election fraud, um, both like leading up to and during like the extended election, um, like the counting process or whatever, I wanted to see how how far did that penetrate. Um, and so I actually had ran a first study 
was like on the Friday, but they hadn't called it yet. And so it was like, if you were paying close attention, at least in my media ecosystem, it was pretty obvious that Biden had won by that point. Um, of course, hard, like hardly any of the Trump supporters uh, believed that he had, that uh, Trump had lost. And so what we did is on the 10th, which was three days after the, the media had called the election and that it was obvious that Biden had won, uh, we ran a study to see you know, part of it was descriptive. How, like, what proportion of Trump voters really believe that Trump won? And then, of course, the the key thing related to everything we've been talking about is what relates to that. Like, what predicts what whether you're a Trump voter who believes, counter to like your strong motivations and so on, that uh, Trump didn't actually win, or at least they're more uncertain about whether Trump won. I guess. If yeah. You know, so this was right before the riots. This was right before the insurrection. On November 10th, three days after the election was called for Biden by mainstream media outlets, Penny Cook and Rand, they got together. They conducted a very scientific survey, a national survey that quota matched the distribution of age and gender and ethnicity and region. They even included things like level of education and so on. And they asked these people about their beliefs. And they write in their paper, despite a lack of any meaningful evidence of systemic election fraud, a majority of Trump voters believe that fraud is common in U.S. elections. 77% said they believe that fraud is just everywhere, even though that's not true. There's no evidence of that. And 65% said, yeah, I believe Trump won the election. I reject the evidence in front of me. Now, when a psychologist sees an impact this large, something this enormous, a group of people this gigantic who all share a delusional view of the world, it means there can't be just one thing at play. In fact, you may recall in episode 157 when we explored the psychology of pluralistic ignorance by exploring what happened with Jim Jones and his followers, that sort of mass suicide with that many people all sharing a belief in something that just is not true, not real. The psychologist in that episode pointed to the fact that that is very rare because it requires a confluence of psychological mechanisms that usually happen two or three at a time, but rarely a dozen all at once within one individual mind, especially not a dozen at once within the minds of thousands, or in this case, millions. So we were, we were trying to like quantify how deep the... Um misinformation problem was essentially like in this case like how how prevalent is this plainly false belief that trump won at a time when it was it had become plainly false yeah because that tells you that it has to be a lot of things right if it's one thing then you're not going to get that you're not going to get that big of a difference there but the the size of the the size of the kind of delusion tells you how how many things are working towards that same uh, problem We've already covered a lot of those things in episode 185 about why people refuse to wear masks. And I can sum all that up here, but I hope you go back and listen to that episode. If you really want to understand what happened at the Capitol, that episode goes through a lot of the material that we're just going to bypass in this episode to get at something new that Penny Cook has uncovered. But to sum it up, it's this. In a very polarized time, 
a fact-based issue can become politicized. And when that happens, believing one way or another about that becomes a badge of loyalty or a symbol of shame, depending on who you consider us and who you consider them. But unaware that this is what is motivating those attitudes, people search for reasons, for justifications and rationalizations that people who share their values will consider reasonable. So motivated reasoning, motivated cognition, tribal psychology, and the strange way that reasoning is more or less just coming up with reasons that are plausible for what you think, feel, and believe. And plausible means things that will maintain your reputation among trusted others. All of those things must be at play for something like the insurrection to happen. There's also something else that must be at play. What is that thing? What is that psychological mechanism? We'll get into it after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. 
every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I'm David McCraney. Our guest in this episode is cognitive psychologist Gordon Pennycook, who was studying the impact of false information related to the election, related to the idea of election fraud right before the insurrection took place. And he found in his research that there was such a large number of people who believed that the election was stolen, that there was a conspiracy afoot, that Trump was actually the president, and there was some sort of 
nefarious cabal of people working in the shadows trying to steal the election from him. He found that there were so many people who believed that, such a large percentage of Trump supporters, that there must be some confluence of psychological factors at play. And in investigating that, he found not only was it a confluence of things that we've talked about on the show, there was one thing in particular that seemed to be foundational beneath all of that that must be in place for something this large to occur when it comes to false beliefs. Well, so um, there's one, I think, pretty revealing finding in, in the study that we had published about the election. And so we found that so people who are more reflective, Trump voters who are more reflective, had more accurate beliefs. The Trump voters who were more reflective were less likely to hold false beliefs. More reflective. He's talking about cognitive reflection. That's a psychological term. And that seems to be the major factor here, according to Pennycook's research. And this is not a new finding for him. Since 2016, he and his colleagues have consistently found that a lack of cognitive reflection is more correlated with believing and sharing fake news and conspiracy theories and false information spread through Facebook and espoused by the president himself than any other psychological phenomenon. What is cognitive reflection? Well, it's a form of metacognition, thinking about thinking. Now, a lot of things go into cognitive reflection. There are dozens and dozens of psychological phenomena that will all add up to being very high in cognitive reflection or very low in it. Things like something they call a need for cognition, people who really value thinking itself, that they, they enjoy it. It gives them positive brain chemicals when they sort out problems and learn things and read stuff on Wikipedia and then repeat it back to other people. I mean, you know, it goes along with all sorts of other personality traits, and it can be insufferable sometimes if you just are kind of one of those people who says, well, really, or actually, in situations where maybe it doesn't matter so much at that moment. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It just exists. But it does correlate very highly with all sorts of other things that people do. And it's something that you can kind of learn. At least you can become familiar with it. This is something that often is the whole point of higher education is to become better at cognitive reflection or at least know that cognitive reflection is available to you. It's also something that is vital to certain professions like being a scientist. If you're not very cognitively reflective, you probably won't be a very good scientist because most of the scientific method is hypothesis testing and accepting that you might be wrong and not looking for confirmation of what you believe or think or feel or hypothesize, but looking for disconfirmation of it. Psychologists a while back, years ago, developed a test to see just how cognitively reflective an individual may be. Some of these questions have made their way out of the lab and into public discourse, and some of them haven't. Uh, if you haven't heard of any of these, this will be very fun for you. If not, just bear with me because I'd like to ask some questions from the cognitive reflection task to you right now. A bat and ball cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Now, a lot of people answer 10 cents, but the thing that you have to do to be cognitively reflective in this task is realize the word total means it's the combined cost of the two items. So $1 more than 10 cents is $1.10. $1.10 plus 10 cents is $1.20. So the correct answer 
is five cents. Here's another. If it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? The non-reflective answer is 100 minutes, and the reflective answer is five minutes. In a lake, there is a patch of lily pads. Every day, the patch doubles in size. If it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how long would it take for the patch to cover half the lake? A lot of people say 24 days, but the correct solution is 47 days, just one day before it doubles to cover the whole lake. If a hole is three feet around and three feet deep, how much dirt is in it? Well, holes don't have dirt in them, so none, it's a hole. If you're running a race and pass the person in second place, what place are you in? Well, you just replace the person in second place, making you the person in second place. People often get these questions wrong because the brain is, as psychologists and neuroscientists sometimes say, a cognitive miser. It takes so much energy, literally the largest share of the calories consumed by the body, to engage in cognitive processes. So when thinking about thinking can be avoided, well, we avoid it. Yet research in the last 20 years or so has found that there is a spectrum when it comes to cognitive reflection, and some brains, as Pinnacook puts it, are less miserly than others. And people with those kinds of brains tend to do really well on the cognitive reflection task, which strongly correlates to how people respond to other cognitive reflection tasks. And one of those tasks that we're all facing right now is how to parse what is and isn't true in a very complex rich, strange, new, fragmented information environment. So what I am not saying here, what Penny Cook is not saying here, is that Trump supporters are dumb or that the people who stormed the Capitol are in some way just stupid. I'm not saying that. He's not saying that. What we're saying here in this episode is that lots of things affect cognitive reflection. There are things that will motivate you to do this. There are things that will have happened in your life that make you more likely to do this. There are all sorts of things that can happen environmentally that put you in a state of mind where you're less likely to even want to do this and you'd rather go with trusted sources instead of going through each individual headline that comes your way and trying to determine first whether or not that source is trustworthy. It's just easier to go with sources that you believe are trustworthy already. And in some cases, it's just easier to listen to what they call trusted elites, people high up in the social hierarchy, people like politicians and presidents or maybe scientists and doctors, whoever it is in your value system, if you lean on those people for your information, it's just easier to accept what you're hearing than it is to go through each individual sentence as if it's a question in the cognitive reflection task. And that's what Penny Cook was finding in his research long before the riots at the Capitol. We, the first study we ever did on fake news, um, David and I, was December 2016, you know, about a month after the the last election and we've been you know tracking this kind of stuff talking about the how problematic it is and there's been some like pushback about you know um a particular form like that is the fake news thing that is people fabricating news headlines that particular form of misinformation you know isn't it's probably not as common as people thought it was but of course when people were saying fake news they meant something broader than that you know falsehood spread on the internet. Um, and what had kind of happened in the interim is that it became a mainstream phenomenon, you know, like, uh, and a lot of that was, you know, Trump increased, increasing levels of falsehoods, uh, like on Twitter and elsewhere. And, um, 
and then more and more buy-in from Republican leaders and like um, extreme kind of fragmentation in the media uh, ecosystem. And then you have like Newsmax and One American News actually getting like people watching them because Fox News was not extreme enough during the election. Uh, and it was sad to watch it happen. Penny Cook studies misinformation, how it spreads through social networks, both online and offline. He's been doing it for years. Falsehoods that spread from brain to brain, believed and traded and used to help disambiguate the ambiguous, to find certainty in uncertainty, which is difficult to do in a fragmented news ecosystem and much more difficult to do when that news ecosystem is just part of a complex and confusing larger information ecosystem of the internet in general. Our brains just did not evolve to deal with this much information about what is real and what is happening outside of themselves, outside of immediate experience and attention. And there's a term in crisis research that relates to this. Crisis research is the science that studies how information flows during natural disasters and other dense but uncertain information environments. And that term is collective sense-making. This comes from the work of crisis researcher Kate Starbird, and I'll link to her writings in the show notes for this episode. Collective sense-making is something you've likely experienced if you lived through a tornado, a hurricane, a flood, or a pandemic. We covered some of this in episode 177 about the early response to COVID. When you're faced with an urgent situation where you aren't certain how to behave or what to believe, it's very taxing. Cognitive reflection becomes very difficult, so you turn to trusted peers to trade information back and forth and generate a collective worldview so you can together create goals, plans of action, decisions, and so on. You're offloading a lot of the work that one brain would have to do to a group of brains trading and arguing and deliberating and sorting out what is and is not so. This creates what Starbird calls information voids. We all start to have a sense that there is missing information about certain things that could be useful, and we are compelled to work together to fill those voids. As we do, we constantly update the agreed-upon facts of the situation. We accept, as a group, that the truth is fluid, and we attempt to update ourselves and everyone around us until we reach some sort of information stability. And once we reach that stability, that can become the worldview that we then use to proceed forward. We're looking to create a more accurate shared reality as the situation unfolds, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the shared reality isn't a delusion, at least not until it gets updated further. That's the essence of collective sense-making. When something impacts a group and they all have high uncertainty and high anxiety, they work together to resolve that shared uncertainty and anxiety. To paraphrase Starbird, we instinctually come together to make sense of the situation. Naturally, though, there will be a lot of rumors and misinformation in that environment. And before the modern era, before the internet, we could use trust to sort it out. We looked to trusted friends, family, neighbors, people that were in our flesh and blood, physical space. And that trust was nuanced because we had a sense of who could and couldn't be trusted in specific domains. Some people were more connected than others. Some had more experience and so on. We're very good at this. There's a term in psychology called epistemic vigilance, which refers to a collection of physical structures and mental modules that seem to be pre-installed in our brains thanks to natural selection that serve to modulate how we parse information communicated from other brains. Starbird says that historically, our biggest challenge as we evolved those structures was lack of information. But she says, quote, in the connected era, the problem isn't a lack of information, but an overabundance of information and the challenge of figuring out which information we should trust and which information we shouldn't trust. 
And as Penny Cook pointed out, that's very difficult right now for anyone. There's more information available to the average person than ever before in human history. But as social primates that evolved language to trade information back and forth between minds, minds generated by brains compelled by collective sense-making, we depend on trust to engage in that epistemic vigilance. But thanks to the way politics just sorted itself out here in the modern era in the last few years, combined with a confluence of psychological phenomena, a very large portion of the United States public now no longer trusts half of their neighbors, a whole lot of their friends and family, and all of mainstream media. And in that environment, they turned to a trusted elite, to their leader, for the information they needed to make sense of things, to lower their anxiety. And that leader was Trump and the politicians that supported Trump. And they formed a culture of information exchange around that leader's messages, a worldview that led to a new set of values, norms, and behavior. So this is related to COVID misperceptions, like um, to mask work and like uh, the 5G thing and just to Bill Gates do it and, you know, whatever. There's a variety. Not all of them are like that conspiratorial, but there's a conspiratorial flavor to them. Um, so we ran a study at the end of March and then another one in December. And so in the States, political ideology is a pretty strong predictor of having COVID misperceptions. Um, in, so in December relative to March, the effect size for that is like almost twice as big. Like it's a super strong correlation. You're more conservative, you're more likely to have misperceptions about COVID-19 in the US. However, a more consistent predictor is not ideology per se, but just how much you distrust like mainstream liberal quote unquote news sources like Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, et cetera, and how much you trust conservative news sources, Fox News, um, um, Breitbart, et cetera. We're living through a time in which millions of people are bound together by a collective distrust. And it's modulated by cognitive dissonance, which is that I might be wrong feeling. And the brain just wants dissonance to be resolved. And it can do that usually in two ways. Update your attitude or belief or interpret new evidence as supporting one or both. In short, you update your worldview as new information comes in, or you update your interpretation of the information as it comes in. And this is an escalating loop because once accepting that certain evidence is true generates cognitive dissonance. Any news organization that reports something that challenges your attitude or belief or your connection to your group, it no longer seems objective to you. People locked in distrust will then go looking for sources that better confirm their attitudes and beliefs. And if those sources betray them, they go further and further into the fringe until they've abandoned the sources that other people trust for information. They end up on message boards and in meme space, on social media and so on. And furthermore, anyone who does trust the sources, they don't, seems like a sheep to them, a rube. They are in the know and everyone else, well, it's them. They are the ones who are deluded. Compounding this is the fact that there is always a marketplace for people in a state of anxiety who feel a deep distrust looking to resolve their cognitive dissonance in the direction of maintaining their existing attitudes and beliefs. There's a lot of money to be made in selling confirmation masquerading as information. And this is what makes Penny Cook's work so fascinating because he's found it isn't conservatism that's driving this. It isn't some sort of Republican politics that's driving this. It isn't ideology. That is not the root. 
Now, these things all affect this for sure, but they're affecting cognitive reflection. Underneath all of that, at the level of neurons, at the level of sense-making itself, it's just coincidence that a portion of people in this particular group found themselves lost within a mass delusion. And so, like, trusting the conservative news, which is not, it's, I mean, it's pretty, it's strongly correlated with ideology, but it's not the same thing. It's a better and more consistent predictor of misperceptions than ideology per se, right? Mm-hmm. And to think about it this way, like, the, the, um, there's no inherent connection between conservatism and bleeding falsehoods about COVID-19, right? Like in Britain, you don't see, there's some kind of small correlation with conservatism, but it's way, way smaller in the, in the UK than in the US if you run the studies at the exact same time. Um, it's constructed. It's constructed by, you know, the historical happenstance of um, Trump being crazy and like, uh, you know, and the, I mean, there's probably some conservative resistance to like, the control of wearing masks and all that kind of stuff, but you could imagine yeah. going the other way, like pathogen resistance, whatever. Um, most of that is just driven by like historical accidents. Uh, and, but now we're facing the repercussions of a fragmented and completely fucked up uh, <laughs> a news ecosystem. Penny Cook's research, when he presented a mix of fake news that favored Democrats with fake news that favored Republicans, to mixed groups of people, both strongly Democrat and strongly Republican, he found that the better people were at cognitive reflection, the less they believed fake news was true across the board. As he wrote, quote, contrary to the popular motivated reading account of political cognition, our evidence indicates that people fall for fake news because they fail to think not because they think in a motivated or identity-protective way. So the factors that influence a person to feel safe, to not think, are the things that affect cognitive reflection, and cognitive reflection is the thing that affects whether or not you start to believe in a conspiracy theory and form a community around it. Cognitive reflection is the culprit here. People will be more likely to believe misinformation and spread it on the internet when they feel most safe, most permitted, and most encouraged to trust their intuition. In short, when it seems okay to think in a lazy way, we all prefer to do so. But this has always been true about us, about human beings. So how did it lead to people buying plane tickets and donning bison horns and taking zip ties and pipe bombs to the Capitol where they stole laptops? And for one, Ashley Babbitt, giving up her life. Penny Cook says it was a slow sloughing off process, something akin to what happens in an email scam. In an email scam, over time, the scammer learns to make their emails more and more obvious as a scam. That's because it takes a year or more to rope someone in. And so if at any point along the way that person catches on or becomes hesitant, it's a giant waste of the scammer's time and effort. It's better to cast a wide net with a more obvious opening email so that the few people who fall for it are the ones who are more likely to fall for the rest of the scam as it unfolds. 
As we mentioned earlier, Trump supporters moved farther and farther away from trusted sources. And as they did so, many reached a point where they could go no further. Cognitive reflection kicked in and eliminated that portion of the group in an iterative fashion over and over from continuing further into the fringe. And at some point, a portion of those millions of people become the relatively small group that was willing to engage in violence. At every step of that, you lose people, right? Um, where if you have to, there's some people who definitely have a strong, like, you know, and there's differences in motivation, but there's also like underlying differences in like how um, lack of, the kind of lack of discernment that people have over and above, uh, you know, their ideology, right? And I think, the, I think the kind of impulse that we have to blame it on ideology per se is false. It seems to me, and I want you just to correct me where, where I'm wrong here, that a lot of your work is saying, okay, it's a bit more complicated than that, and people are very nuanced, and even amongst a group of motivated people, uh, there are there's a lot of cognitive diversity there. Yeah, sure. The, um, you can kind of think about it as thinking styles, right? I mean, there's 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 the, you know, we differ a lot in our information environments, and that's really important. But we also differ in how we kind of uh, interpret and come in information, how willing we are to stop and reflect. And one of the key things is whether you are willing to question your own intuitions and beliefs. And so like, so, so imagine somebody who is, um, for whatever reason, you know, they're raised in a house that has Fox News on all the time, right? That's going to that's gonna really kind of influence the, the extent to which they view the same claim as being plausible versus somebody who only listens to MSNBC. But that is that's one key important thing but people also differ in the extent to which they are going to actually question those things that they have just learned through transmission or whatever and then if you if you don't have that um if you don't do that to some like meaningful extent you're never going to change your beliefs in any kind of meaningful way right like it, it's kind of precursor to apart from like you know you're potentially exposed to different things and eventually they change over time but for you you being responsible yourself for being more accurate and coming to better, uh, making better choices and having more accurate beliefs, that requires you to reflect. Um, and people differ on that, and so you get you get a wide range of a whole different category of the type of things that people end up believing and uh, engaging with. And I think it has major consequences for lots of things in psychology. So it seems like it's like saying um, someone is athletic, and there are one hundred million factors that would go into like that umbrella concept that person's athletic and if yeah. you say someone is is high in cognitive reflection or they're they're more likely to ref, to cognitively reflect in one domain or another there's many many factors that would go into making that true or not about a, an individual yeah and, and the quality of the reflection varies you know it's not just you know because um somebody who stops and thinks but has weak knowledge or uh is you know super low working memory capacity be, to be really specific about it or whatever? It's not going to be that effective, you know what I mean? And so you need you need a kind of confluence of factors um, to be a good thinker. And one of the and so one of the key things is being willing to think in the first place. Um, and there are some things that go into that, but there's other elements that are important as well, obviously. You know, it just seems I often use the metaphor of a of a pilot's checklist, in that you know even if you're not great at this, you're not are your this is not your default setting and maybe you haven't learned all these skills, like it's possible to give someone sort of a, 
a stepwise thing of like, when we engage in this task, do this, 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 and this, and maybe they can, you know, uh, offload to the will of the checklist instead of depending on their own will. It seems there's opportunities, um, but that's not what happens when you're messing around on Facebook by yourself, isolated from the rest of the world, just looking and, and reading things and deciding whether or not they're true. Actually, that's a good example. Um, so like what we find in some of our, a lot of our studies is that when people are making judgments about what to share, like on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever, this is in the context of our lab studies, but they, they often don't think about whether it's accurate or they don't seem to, or at least their responses are not calibrated to accuracy. So if you, if you ask people, if you give people a set of headlines uh, that are true and false, they're pretty good at distinguishing between whether they're true or false. If you ask them to do so, if you ask them, would you share these people end up sharing more false headlines than are believed by the group who's asked about accuracy. Right. Um, and if you, and then if you get people to like ask, if you ask about accuracy, they'll share like 50% less true headline. If it, like for every single headline, if you ask before they share it, do you believe this to be true? Then they'll share like, uh, half as many false headlines because now they're thinking about accuracy where they weren't doing that before. Um, and so we have this like, this kind of like accuracy. I don't know if you want to call it a nudge or whatever. It's a prompt for people. We don't tell them to think about accuracy. We just get them to think about accuracy for one headline at the start of the experiment. Then at, after that, they make judgments about sharing. And that act of thinking about accuracy once transfers out to the judgments about sharing. They now are more likely to think about that before they make the judgment. And so in a certain sense, you know, it's just kind of making them more reflective about accuracy. Like they're just thinking about something that they weren't thinking about otherwise because they're in a kind of automatic mode where they're focusing on whatever stupid shit you think about when you're going to share something on Facebook. <laughs> like, are people going to like this and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but, but it, I mean, but it indicates that people can improve, right? That like the, it, if it was only competency and intelligence, then like getting them to think more about accuracy is not going to do anything, obviously. When we have this giant ecosystem you're talking about, and a lot of it is completely outside of uh, any mainstream news, they're just this is just trading in memes. This is just trading in in um, in threads on Reddit and Parler and other places. It, there's a, as you were saying, there's a sloughing off at e at each stage where people who are more reflective or people who are who are maybe more engaged in the political process they get sloughed off along the way, and eventually you're just left with a cohort of people who, well, that's given all these nuances, you've sort of selected them out of everything and they've become the kind of people who would be the kind of people who would go all the way to putting on a bison horns and, and smashing in a window and such. I mean, is that sort of, am I in the right place with that? I think so. Yep. Yeah, it's, yep. How did, con how did a conspiracy theory become the nucleus of a political movement? We found that the Trump voters who were higher in political knowledge like, and who were following the election more closely were more likely to think that Trump won. So, so these are people that are engaging more with news content, right? They're, they're like, uh, they have like, they, 
they know more about American politics. They they care more. It's not like they're apathetic. And so the the uh, in this case the conspiracy is being driven by I think largely the like completely messed up media environment. Uh, um, and it's less about uh, it's less about having individual um, people's like suddenly revealing some conspiratorial like inclinations. It's just like it's revealing that they don't have strong non-conspiratorial inclinations. Like they're not, they aren't recognizing that it seems like it's unlikely because it's conspiracy. People don't really think about things like in that sort of way, but it tells you that people don't have the sort of um, uh, cognitive barriers and guards, the tools to recognize conspiracies to the extent that we probably thought they did. Right. Okay. Because like, if you think about the, like, you know, not many people believe in moon landing hoax and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, what this kind of indicates is that, Mostly the reason for that is that they weren't fed it a lot. <laughs> like it was like there was the the information that are, you know, they come across in the environment. Just there wasn't a lot of it telling them that the moon landing was a hoax. And so the people who believed in conspiracies that relate to that kind of stuff had to kind of search it out. In this case, you know, it was just if you're if you put on the news and you happen to uh, engage with the right wing uh, news content, you're going to be exposed to conspiracy and you don't have <laughs> people don't have the tools enough of the tools as maybe we thought they did to, to deal with that, which is the depressing part. Okay. Gordon, are you telling me that one of the titrating factors for conspiracy theories in our day-to-day -day life is exposure to the information itself? Because the, the thing that's, really at play is how prevalent is reflection, uh, the, the capacity for cognitive reflection within the audience that is being exposed to that information. Yeah, so both of those things are important. Like if you th think about the base rate, of so reflection is important insofar as you have to deal with some problematic information, right? Like the, it's most important if you need to block something that's false or believe something that's true. And the more, um, how the amount of bullshit that you have to deal with is going to make the importance of being reflective greater. Right. Um, and so, you know, um, given that there's some like base rate level of how much people think about things, the, the more drastic, the bullshit exposure, the more, you know, um, the more problematic it's going to be. I mean, it, it feels like what you're saying is what broke wasn't on the side of the audience. What broke is on the side of um, the last couple decades of, newspapers being demolished by the internet and social media rising to prominence, smartphones giving you Google and access to more information than you ever, like just this, this totally new information environment over on this side has removed a lot of gatekeepers who had value systems that were related to accuracy and objectivity. When that got broken, this, these latent things that were already there and probably have been there for a million years in human brains they just did what they did. They just reacted to it the way that's, that wasn't what was a, that's not something new over here in the audience. The audience was what the audience was going to be always. Yeah, that's my view. I feel like you, you, when people are talking about it in like, like CBC and NPR and stuff, they're like, so is this Facebook's fault? And if so, 
what should Facebook be doing differently or what should Twitter be doing differently? And there's been a lot of talk about, hey, they when they kicked Donald Trump off of there and then they went through and pulled all the QAnon people off there, things did get better. Uh, I don't know how to feel about it ethically or morally, and I'm not going to put you in that seat. But um, you've written about things that they've done in the past don't seem to match up to the evidence. If you could talk about that a little bit and then uh, – if you have any ideas about what would be a good way to uh, regulate and revamp how social media deals with, with um, this, sort of, this kind of information, I'd love to hear it. So, the, so the, the issue is that social media companies are incentivized to do things that seem intuitively to work. And in fact, they're incentivized to do them fast. So, they, so you do something that sounds like it makes sense and then you know, don't test it. Or in any case, if they do test it, they never released whatever their tests are they never tell us whether it's effective or not um they just kind of say this is the thing and then because they don't want to release the data like i mean they don't have to release the actual data but like the information um it's just the only way that it works in the court of public opinion is that it it seems to make intuitive sense that it would work um and that's not the right way to create policy right i mean you create policy based on evidence and a lot of the things that seem to work like taking something as disputed Sometimes people think that that means things that are untagged are therefore verified. So there's some like potential like implications for that kind of stuff. Um, you you need to you need to actually test the things, and then if you want us to trust that you're doing things to make things better, you have to give us the information that allows us to assess that. <clears throat> and even if they don't like, so there's there's got to be some sort of, sort of way to do that more effectively than trusting what giant corporations are going to do and that they're doing it in our best interests. I mean, and even if they they could. Technically, they could say we're doing X and we have no way of verifying that they're doing it. Um, like we're going to we're going to um, use people's uh, ratings of the trustworthiness of sources to, to inform the algorithm. It's like, OK, so how are you doing that? Because like we did a study where if you ask people who are familiar with bad sources, if they trust them, then that they, they rate them as being somewhat more trustworthy. And then that make actually surfaces more bad stuff than um but otherwise, if you do it so that you just ask everybody whether or not they're familiar with the sources, whether they trust them, then that will give you a pretty good output in terms of like uh, the quality of the stuff. Um, and so it's like critically important how you actually implement that. But they're like, well, that's part of the algorithm. You can't, you know, we don't talk about it. You know what I mean? Um, and so there's no way of, there's no way to vet. Uh, and there's no, um, it's just whether they, the, um, whether they can mitigate any kind of damage in the court of public opinion. Uh, and so that's just not a very effective way to, to build policy. Uh, we need to come up with some sort of positive message for the end of this uh, this show, though, don't we? Um, uh, no, there's a positive message here, which is uh, it's not like this. the great human experiment ended with Donald Trump. Uh, if anything, he's a mm-hmm. white hat hacker. If anything, he's a giant inoculation. Uh, what happens next is we know all that. We know these weaknesses now, what? And people like yourself, the social sciences, the cognitive sciences, it's more important than ever that we 
dig in and start really researching this. After World War II, all of social, almost all of psychology was like, how did that happen? And that's how you get the Milgram experiments and all the other stuff. Like, we need 20 years of how did that happen? And I feel like that's exactly what you're doing. I, that's a, that's a great, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree that that is, there's, there's some, um, silver lining there for sure. And at least, <laughs> at, at least, I mean, at least for me in terms of like, this is super interesting and I, and there's lots of stuff to, to do work on and yeah. uh, I will presumably stay employed because of that. But, uh, yeah, well, there's the silver light, but you know, that's what I feel. It's a strange silver lining, but yeah, post-World yeah, War II, yeah. we all wanted to know how can human beings do such a thing? And a lot of our answers came from psychology. Uh, and we still talk about that. If you take a psychology course, a lot of what you take, even if some of it isn't replicating anymore, it doesn't matter. The, a lot of what you take, what, a lot of what you learn about is what the incentives during that period of time was like, how did Hitler happen? Yeah. And there's, there's room for, I think that, the, and there is, I think there's a strong desire like across the board. I mean, like even across political lines to like, to, to, to try to get out of this. Um, I think there we that's the one thing that we can all agree on, you know what I mean? Um, and so hopefully some tangible steps can actually be taken. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For transcripts and past episodes, you can also go there, or you can go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, and of course, youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We are also on Facebook slash youarenotsosmart. And if you'd like to support this one-person operation, help make it better, Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, sign books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music right here is by Banjo Apocalypse. The other interstitial music in this episode, most of it, was by Mogwai. Thank you, Mogwai, for continuing to support the show. Hey, tell everyone you know about this show. That's the best way to support it. Send links out there, tell people what you've learned, and check back in about two weeks. For a fresh new episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.